Salofa Lava. This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susanna Suiswiki. Coming up, the Marshall Islands commemorates the 70th anniversary of the Castle Bravo nuclear test. Also, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has traditionally been a ministry in which the key plays a major role in. Tonga's Prime Minister is urged to give up his ministerial portfolios. And later, we take a look at what's ahead for our Pacific sports teams. On March 1, 1954, the U.S. government exploded a thermonuclear weapon on Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands, codenamed Castle Bravo. The nuclear test was considered to be a thousand times more powerful than the U.S. atomic bomb dropped in Hiroshima. This year marks the 70th anniversary of the Bravo test, and the island nation will be holding ceremonies to commemorate the day. It's also a day for the younger generation in the Marshall Islands to learn about the 67 U.S. nuclear tests conducted between 1946 and 1958. Joining me to talk about the nuclear legacies is the Marshall Islands correspondent for Islands Business Publication, Nick McLellan. I began by asking Nick what exactly happened 70 years ago on Bikini Atoll. The U.S. had developed atomic weapons, uh, so-called fission weapons, Um, in the Nevada desert at the test site. Uh, Famously, uh, the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were atomic weapons. Um, But uh, the United States wanted to develop more powerful uh, weapons uh, that were known as hydrogen bombs. Um, The first of these was conducted in 1952, the so-called Ivy test. Um, But the test in uh, March 1954, codenamed Bravo, was the first time that they uh, really wanted to to see um, how uh, a major thermonuclear weapon, a major hydrogen bomb, um, would go. In fact, it was a much bigger explosion than um, expected. Uh, scientists had predicted that they may get to the level of uh, three or four megatons, which is the equivalent of uh, you know a few million tons of TNT explosive. In fact, it was 15 megatons in explosive yield. That's um, about a thousand times more powerful than the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima by the United States in August 1945. And because of the size and scale of the uh, detonation on Bikini Atoll, um, radioactive fallout spread from the mushroom cloud across pretty much every atoll in the Marshall Islands uh, but particularly the northern atolls um, that were in the uh, line of the wind blowing a plume of contaminated nuclear materials across the ocean and across the northern atolls. Why the Marshall Islands, though? Why did they choose to do those nuclear tests on Bikini Atoll? In those days, um, the United States military effectively governed um, the large part of Micronesia. After the Second World War, when American Marines and other military forces had fought their way through Micronesia towards Japan, the United Nations declared that the, uh, uh, there would be a strategic trusteeship governing uh, the islands of Micronesia. And that trust territory of the Pacific Islands was administered by the United States. Um, immediately after the war, in 1946 the United States decided that it would be a suitable place to develop its nuclear arsenals, 
um, while testing had been conducted at Nevada um, in the deserts of New Mexico, um, it was felt that this was an isolated place where uh, more powerful weapons could be tested. Obviously, uh, it wasn't empty. It wasn't a vast empty space. And just as the British and the French chose sites in the Pacific for Cold War nuclear testing, the United States uh, conducted over time 67 tests on Bikini and Eniwetok atolls. They then, uh, in 1962, conducted another 24 nuclear tests at uh, Christmas Island. That's today part of the Republic of um, of Kiribati, and where that's where Britain had done its uh, nuclear testing program once again for the hydrogen bomb. So this was a Cold War arms race, and the United States and other Western powers wanted to stay ahead of the Soviet Union, which was also developing its own nuclear arsenal. Has the US acknowledged the devastation that they've caused? There were significant steps forward when Marshall's moved to self-government in 1984, uh, sorry, 1986. That was under a compact of free association uh, where the United States and Marshall Islands uh, came to a framework agreement that's governed the country ever since. Uh, This uh, compact has just been renewed, although the US Congress has failed to provide the necessary funding to implement the pledges made to the people and government of the Marshall Islands. Um, The compact had specific provisions uh, to set up a trust fund for nuclear consequences and a nuclear claims tribunal was established um, and that operated throughout most of the 1990s. The nuclear claims tribunal issued court rulings amounting to more than 2.3 billion US dollars. That was for property damage, for damage to health, for loss of, of income and well-being, um, and particularly the irradiation of people's homes and home islands. Unfortunately, the money that was in the 1986 uh, Compact Trust Fund uh, was nowhere near enough to meet that level of damages. And although the Marshall Islands sought extra funding in a petition to the US Congress in uh, the year 2000, um, the US authorities have failed signally for more than a quarter of a century to meet the full commitment to the people of the Marshall Islands that were judged by the uh, Nuclear Claims Tribunal back in the 1990s, early 2000s. So why isn't the US fully addressing the nuclear issues? Well, I think there's a, a real problem, and it's not just the United States. All of the nuclear weapons powers are reluctant to acknowledge that the development of Cold War nuclear arsenals uh, impacted on local communities, um, neighbouring communities, as well as the servicemen and women, the the labourers who staffed the test sites. Um, Just uh, before Christmas on the 22nd of December, Kiribati and Kazakhstan both uh, put forward a resolution to the UN General Assembly calling for assistance to nuclear survivors and remediation, environmental remediation of nuclear test sites. Um, That resolution grew out of the 2021 Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the so-called Nuclear Ban Treaty. And it's, uh, you know, it's shocking that the nuclear weapon states either abstained or voted against that resolution. Five nuclear weapon states, um, the United States, China, Israel, Pakistan and India, 
wouldn't vote in favour. They abstained. Uh, 171 countries voted in favour. Only four countries in the world voted no, voted to say that they wouldn't assist nuclear survivors and contribute to environmental remediation of nuclear test sites based on this international initiative. France and Britain joined Russia and North Korea to vote no. So the next time you hear French and British diplomats talk about how committed they are to the Pacific Islands region, remember that they lined up with Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un to say that they would not contribute to international efforts um, in line with this non-binding UN resolution to assist nuclear survivors for the 20th century disaster that they themselves created through nuclear testing at 10 sites around the Pacific. Just while we're on the subject of um, you know, international leaders, why do the leaders, particularly in the North Pacific, Marshall Islands, Palau and FMS, like, why do they say that these islands are allies of the US despite the crippling impact that they've left behind from the nuclear test? Wouldn't you think that there'd be some animosity in their relationship with the US? The Compacts of Free Association that Palau, FSM and the Marshall Islands have signed have a lot of advantages um, for the Micronesian peoples in the Northern Pacific, um, particularly around migration rights, so people can travel freely to Guam, to Hawaii and even mainland United States. Uh, there's a big Marshallese community, for example, in Arkansas, uh, working and, and living in, uh, in the southern states of America. At the same time, uh, the US provides funding for a whole range of services, everything from postal services to health and other areas. And uh, like many small island developing countries, there's a reliance on overseas assistance, technical assistance, finance, and so on. The sting in the tail, however, is that under the Compact of Free Association, the United States has uh, a level of influence, indeed control, over defense and foreign policy. And thus you see quite often, for example, uh, Federal States of Micronesia or Marshall Islands voting with the United States and Israel around questions on Palestine. But there's this tension. Um, although uh, the witnesses, direct witnesses to the tests have largely passed on, a younger generation is still grappling with um, problems of nuclear contamination, the danger that the so-called Runit Dome will leak... Uh, radioactive isotopes into the marine environment, um, the health problems that have lingered, you know, very high rates of thyroid cancer amongst women, many other health problems related to radiation exposure. Um, these are ongoing problems. And uh, the Marshall Islands has developed a, a national adaptation plan on climate change, and it draws the link explicitly between the nuclear legacies and uh, concerns about rising sea levels that may leach radioactive materials into the marine environment. You say that there's ongoing problems that have been left behind from the nuclear test, um, but yet there's efforts to raise awareness around the health and environmental legacies. Why isn't the history of the nuclear test widely known across the Marshall Islands, despite the obvious impacts that you can see today? For a long time under American administration, uh, the history of this stuff wasn't taught um, uh, in, the, um, in the schools. And now there's great initiatives, uh, say, at the College of the Marshall Islands 
and a body established um, just uh, five years ago, um, the uh, five or six years ago, the Marshall Islands National Nuclear Commission. They've recognised that as the uh, survivors, the direct witnesses of the tests during the 20th century uh, have aged, uh, become ill or died, uh, there's a need to continue to explain this history, partly uh, to address uh, ongoing legacies and partly for a younger generation of Marshallese to think about the future. And that's why the 70th anniversary of the Bravo test on the 1st of March is such an important symbolic date. It's a time to reflect on the past and also look to the future. It's also a reminder that, uh, you know, there were more than 315 nuclear tests, countless nuclear experiments conducted at 10 sites around Oceania, including Australia, Kiribati, French Polynesia, uh, Johnston Atoll, and as well as the Marshall Islands. Um, these legacies are with us, and we're entering a new nuclear era where Japan is dumping treated radioactive wastewater from the Fukushima plant into the Pacific Ocean, where Australia is uh, um, about to purchase nuclear submarines under the AUKUS Pact, and where all the major weapon states are modernising and upgrading the nuclear arsenals. Although the testing finished in 1996 in the Pacific after 50 years, uh, the legacies are still there, the radioactive legacies, the health and environmental legacies are still there, but the nuclear issue is still on the regional agenda. Nine MPs on Tonga are urging Prime Minister Huakave Meliku and Foreign Minister Fekita Utoika Manu to vacate their ministerial portfolios in respect of King Tupou VI. All nine of the MPs are noble representatives. It comes a month after King Tupou expressed his loss of confidence in the ministerial portfolios of the Prime Minister and his Foreign Minister. No reason was given for the King's decision, leaving it open to public speculation. Fina Funua spoke to our correspondent in Tonga, Kalafi Moala. Lord Duivakanoa read a letter to the Prime Minister in Parliament. He read it on behalf of all the noble representatives. What did Lord Duivakanoa say to the Prime Minister? The nobles in Parliament had a meeting and he uh, spoke in Parliament to kind of represent their, their own consensus. Uh, they feel that the prime minister should uh, step out of the portfolio of being the minister of defense as well as the uh, minister of uh, foreign affairs by the, the uh, Uto Ikamanu. Uh, and in, instead of trying to uh, resist the, uh, you know, the expression of, uh, of uh, opinion from, the, from, from his majesty saying that it was unconstitutional and, and so on. So basically, that, that's where the difference came. And the Prime Minister seems to stand his ground that uh, uh, even though the King expressed his uh, dissatisfaction with the uh, performance of the two ministries, it didn't mean he was calling for resignation. And for... So that, that's that's what happened yesterday. There was a uh, the noble express an opinion that they should step down. Um, uh, the Prime Minister is uh, basically standing his ground that uh, 
it will be unconstitutional. What? What? They didn't give a reason when the Privy Council uh, that letter. They didn't actually give a reason for no. What's your speculation, or what's the speculation out there as to the reason why the king has well, lost confidence? Uh, let's just take the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs has traditionally been a ministry in which the king plays a major role in. Uh, I give you for, for example, back during the reign of King Taufahal the IV, he, he was the one that traveled to China and opened the door of uh, diplomatic relations with China. Tonga, therefore, uh, in those days, let go of relations with Taiwan. The king, in the same way, traveled to Saudi Arabia, and, and we had uh, diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia. So traditionally, the monarch, as head of state, have been involved uh, quite a bit in opening up relations with other nations. The other thing, too, in terms of defense, the army is called His Majesty's Army. <laughs> in other words, he, he has traditionally been the one uh, heading up the, 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 the army, the military arm of, of the defense force. Uh, and the re- there was a good reason for that, because they didn't want the defense force to under political um, uh, power, uh, so that they, uh, when a, a, a government comes into place, they, they could be in charge of the army to do something political instead of the defense of the of the country. So in, in, in past years, that has been the role of the monarch in those two ministries. And I guess that uh, what's happened is that the prime minister, uh, the head of government, wants those two ministries to be taken off uh, from the hands of the active uh, execution by the, 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 the head of state to be to the, to the government so that the foreign affairs activities are run by the government, the defense and so on are under the jurisdiction of the government. And that's where the standoff came. This prime minister wants that return. The other thing, too, that, that I have found out is that the Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, they had some staff situation in, in which she dismissed uh, one of the two top staffs, and, and there was complaint about her um, uh, dismissal of those two staffs. So that must have come to the, His Majesty, and so there has been a unhappiness, so-called, of of activities and things going on in foreign affairs. It looks like he's losing a lot of support in Parliament because he had that vote of no confidence and now he has all the nobles against him. So he seems to be in a dangerous position. Um, Yes. uh, What if he doesn't yield to what the nobles have advised him, what, what's the danger he faces? Yes, you're you, you, you correct. You know, whenever a situation like this comes up, the nobles, of course, will always take the, 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 the side of, uh, of the monarch. Uh, the very existence of the, mon- of the nobles is according to the will of the monarch. So in Parliament, they will always be uh, out of their way to support whatever comes out of the palace office. Um, 
On the other hand, what I have seen this uh, Prime Minister doing is, is really trying to pull things back so that instead of the king being a supreme ruler, that our constitution, what is on the constitution, uh, and it's a reformed constitution, of course, will become the supreme rule in which we, we follow. And so I think he's, he's trying to push, <laughs> to push the, 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 the edge there uh, in, in that regard. But as you know, uh, as, as you said rightly, uh, he has had a vote of no confidence in, in which he won, uh, and uh, he needs the support from the nobles. So it's going to be an interesting situation in the next uh, uh, couple of weeks or so here in, in, in Tonga. The Papua New Guinea government is finally moving to resolve fuel shortages, which have plagued the country for more than a year. Puma Energy has been struggling to bring enough fuel to meet demand. The government has announced that it will institute emergency legislation and move to end the near monopoly enjoyed by Puma. Don Wiseman spoke with our PNG correspondent, Scott Whitey. The country, as you and I have discussed on a number of occasions, has been experiencing severe fuel issues now for well over a year. And now, finally, the government has stepped in. It's going to invoke sections of the Essential Services Act to try and uh, ameliorate the situation. What will they actually do? The Essential Services Act covers essential services and one of them being fuel. So in in any emergency circumstances that the government feels is necessary, the government can invoke those sections of the act in order to compel whoever is the subject of that imposition to comply with with government uh, requirements. So in this case, it's Puma Energy. Basically, it's the government says that Puma Energy must continue to supply the fuel and it lists a set of measures that Puma Energy should comply with the government. Now, I asked the Prime Minister yesterday what the possible penalties are if Puma doesn't comply with the directions. And the Prime Minister said the penalties range from anything between uh, millions of kina to tens of millions of kina. Now, it includes the use of Puma Energy's Napa Napa refinery and related infrastructure for other suppliers to use to store fuel. They've also appointed the Deputy Prime Minister, John Russell, as the team leader of the task force. Now, he's done that previously on one occasion where he was used to intervene to resolve an urgent fuel crisis back then. The other thing is it compels government agencies to collaborate with other fuel providers like ExxonMobil and Total to bring about some relief to this whole thing. But in the case of Puma Energy, it's all very well for the government to order them to maintain services, but Puma say they can't bring enough fuel in because of a shortage of foreign exchange. So is that going to be sorted? Yeah, the Central Bank has, on various occasions, whenever there's a request, has been able to provide only 25 million US dollars. And the opposition yesterday said if Puma Energy cannot supply more than that, then it should reduce its business uh, to the value of 25 million and then scale down and eventually sell out and leave. That's uh, basically it. But this tussle between Puma Energy and the Central Bank is continuing. As somebody put it yesterday, they've basically agreed to disagree on, on, on the issue. So this task force headed by the Deputy Prime Minister will hopefully bring about some compromise in this situation. There's no absolute certainty that it will, though. No, there's no real certainty. I mean, yesterday on the political front, the prime minister blamed the former energy minister, Karen Gakua, for 
you know, not progressing and helping the situation to improve. And immediately after that, the opposition held a news conference. I, I asked Karen Gakua, uh, well, basically told Karen Gakua that the prime minister blamed you for not uh, progressing this issue. And he said the solutions were presented to government before he left government. And there's a short-term solution and a long-term solution. And the short-term solution was for the construction of a temporary facility for fuel storage outside of Port Moresby. Now that's being done. The other measure that's that the government announced was for Kumo Petroleum, the government energy company, to also buy and stock fuel. Now, they may probably be using this temporary facility that, that they're building outside of Port Mosby. Moana Pacifica is yet to win their first game against the Fijian draw in the Super Rugby Pacific competition. Playing in their third year, Moana gets the chance to write their own piece of history on Saturday evening in round two of the 2024 series. Head coach Falongo Tana Umanga, a former All Black and Hurricanes captain himself, says his Moana Pacifica Warriors will work on what they've learned to topple the draw. Joining me for our Pacifica Sipoti Talanoa is our senior sports journalist, Ilyasa Tora. Hola Ilyasa, how are preparations by both Moana Pacifica and the Fijian draw for this weekend's Super Round matches? Both uh, the uh, Moana Pacifica and uh, Fijian Rural teams have um, announced uh, their best lineups for this weekend's round two games, uh, while naming uh, former Crusaders flanker Sione Havili Taluli as the man to lead his side against the Fijian Rural in round two. Coach uh, Tanaumanga has uh, said that Talitui would be a, a good leader on the field as he gives players confidence. Uh, unfortunately for Moana and um, their head coach, there are some key players like uh, Captain James Lay who are injured and will miss the game. But good news for them is uh, former Wallabies, Christian uh, Lelefano and um, Sekope Kepu are back in the 23-day um, match squad and they should be studying off the bench. Fijian Rua Chief Executive Mark Evans uh, told uh, the media in Nandi on Thursday that Andrua cannot underestimate Mona Pacifica. Uh, and he said that the team's loss to the Blues last week has given the players a taste of the standard they need to be at for the remainder of the season. And he says that it's going to be a tough game and there aren't any easy games in the Super Rugby Pacific competition. Rural captain Melinder Nalangi also said that they've uh, had to do a lot of work, especially after the loss to the Blues last weekend, and uh, looked at areas, including uh, the set pieces, which are critical for them to uh, to rectify before uh, they face Moana Pacifica. It's going to be an interesting game uh, with both teams, of course, uh, looking for their first win in uh, the competition uh, this year, and uh, Moana having started uh, you know, well and finishing off in the top eight on the points table after the first round uh, would really be trying to, to maintain that consistency uh, as they go into the second round this weekend. Fiji and Samoa are both participating again at the Las Vegas leg of the World Rugby 7 Series. What are their chances of improving their results this weekend? Well, certainly a, a lot of challenge, a lot of challenge for both Fiji uh, and the Samoan men's team and, of course, uh, Fijiana. Uh, getting into uh, Las Vegas uh, uh, this weekend. Last weekend, both the men's teams, Fiji and Samoa, lost out in the quarterfinal, and so 
did uh, Fijiana in the women's competition. For Fiji, it's going to be a, a tough weekend for coach Ben Ben Gollings because at home, the Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka, who's also the patron of Fiji Rugby Union, has called for the Fiji Rugby Union to uh, rectify uh, what he says uh, is, is a big problem, that the Fiji men's team hasn't won any major sevens tournament title on the World Rugby Series in the last 18 rounds of games. And uh, that is a big worry for coach Ben Gollings with uh, the Fiji um, Minister of Sports also joining the uh, the bandwagon, Chesisau Kuru calling for uh, the Fiji Rugby Union to seriously work on rectifying what's happening and try and get the flying uh, Fijian sevens team to win uh, a tournament title before the Olympic Games. Samoa, of course, also uh, looking to to get a win in the series uh, this year. And Brian Lima and his players will have to try and get out of the bottom four on the points table. So that means they must win a quarterfinals, their quarterfinal game if they qualify and win the quarterfinal and get into the same final so they can get more points and move out of uh, the bottom four. In uh, Las Vegas this weekend, Samoa, uh, are pulled with New Zealand, America and Australia in Pool B, uh, which is a very tough pool. And in Pool C, France, uh, Fiji, Great Britain and Canada in there. The Fijiana women uh, also have a, a tough pool uh, with New Zealand, South Africa and Brazil in Pool A. So a lot of interest uh, going to be uh, focused on the weekend uh, events at, uh, at Las Vegas and hopefully uh, our Pacific teams uh, uh, come through. And just to wrap up our Talanoa, what are some of the other big sports events in the Pacific region that's happening this week? I think the, the bigger ones are happening out in Fiji where the uh, National Soccer League, Fiji Football Association National Soccer League, are going into the third round and so is the uh, Fiji Rugby Union uh, uh, competition for both men and women uh, in the different um, uh, grades and levels of competition uh, going into the second round. Um, you know, one of the biggest things that's also happening this weekend is the uh, participation of uh, players of Pacifica Heritage in National Rugby League teams uh, right across uh, Australia. And of course, um, two uh, matches happening out there uh, in the United States of America also uh, this weekend. And of course, there are other um, sports events that are happening in uh, Vanuatu Beach Volleyball. Uh, Cook Islands with uh, football, rugby league, and touch rugby, uh, and uh, uh, you know, out there in uh, in Palau uh, and uh, and Nauru, where uh, AFL uh, is also uh, getting into uh, some competition this weekend. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Spotify, Apple and iHeartRadio. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, till fast way forward.